24 years ago, Sacramento Missionary Convention, Marcia and I were invited guests. We had completed our first four-year term in Swaziland in southern Africa. The opening ceremony was just full of excitement. Uh, there were trumpets, there were balloons ascending, there were flags waving, there were parades down the aisle. It, it was loud and it was exciting. We weren't there to actually speak. We were asked to bring a short word of greeting. I had no idea what I was going to say until the very moment when they handed me the microphone. And this is what I said. It is nighttime here, but it is early morning in Africa. And one of my fellow missionaries has been working all through the night. Most likely, she's been busy in the emergency room trying to stop the bleeding or start someone breathing or keep someone's heart beating. She is saturated with sweat, soaked in blood, stained and soiled. She's exhausted beyond words. Maybe she found a window to grab some breakfast or maybe she didn't. Hopefully a quick shower and change. And now she's going back to the hospital to resume her service, wondering how she's going to find the strength and energy to survive this day. Survive it. Don't ask her to be a great doctor and, and certainly not an exemplary medical missionary. And in light of all that, I don't know what I'm doing here. Shouldn't I be over there, helping her? And then I sat down. <laughs> there was no laughter that night. It just went dead silent. Why did we invite this guy? <laughs> now, that's a good question. And those of you who know me best really do seriously ask that. So, Will Rogers, wherever you are. This is your last chance. Otherwise, we're turning to page two. And so I'm here with you tonight. And over the years, I have formulated something of a response to that question I asked that night, whether it is completely adequate or not. What am I doing here? I am here tonight in an attempt to speak a word for medical missions not because I'm a good representative, it is more likely that I am the most expendable. If you're going to pull someone off the front lines, choose your weakest link. <laughs> Why then did I accept the invitation? Because I'm confident that God is calling many of you into medical missions. And I hope that I can encourage you to a full pursuit of God's highest and, and best for your life. A bundle cradled in an African mother's arms, wrapped without a window, grief and hopelessness on that woman's face. She was surrounded by chaos and suffering in a busy emergency room, but it was really her silence and her stillness that first drew my attention. It was that and her intense focus on that package in her arms. 
I offered, and she accepted, handing me her burden. Inside the shroud was her baby, perfect in outward appearance, but pale and lifeless. Stunned, I asked for an explanation. Mom shared with me that her baby had been fussy and crying. And so, as is the custom in Swaziland, a traditional healer was consulted. The healer, a woman with a two-inch fingernail that had been preserved for this very purpose, had scratched the back of the baby's throat in order to release the evil spirits troubling the child. And in doing so, that fingernail had pierced an artery and her baby had suffocated on its own blood. It was one of my first encounters with Africa, or for that matter, any place outside America. And it was part of my introduction to the suffering and misery that overwhelms much of our world. It is a story so oft repeated that it can numb the listener. But I was not a listener. I was a young and eager medical missionary, or hoped to be. I thought I had been called. I knew I had been commissioned. And I was beginning to realize that I was clueless. And so I would read with you from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So it was, as the multitude pressed around him to hear the word of God, that Jesus stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Simon is a fisherman. Simon is never going to be anything but a fisherman. He's known that all of his life. He's good at it. Simon has responsibilities. He has a wife and a home. Simon needs to work. He needs to catch fish. He can't afford to get too far from that lake, from his boat, from his nets. Jesus, on the other hand, is a carpenter and a preacher. He's not a fisherman. Jesus is good with a hammer and the bench. and Jesus is really good with putting ideas into words. But what does Jesus know about catching fish? So on this morning, after fishing all night and catching nothing but seaweed, Simon is cleaning his nets. Jesus comes down to the water's edge, steps into Simon's boat, and asks Simon to take them out a little ways. 
Well, Simon doesn't say everything he's thinking out loud, but Jesus, you want to use my boat? Sure, you might as well. Oh, you would like me to put out a little from shore. Okay, I was only cleaning my nets. I was thinking I might get some breakfast, but never mind. I'll help you get out a little ways. I'll just wait. You teach. It was evening on a busy Friday on the tail of a full week. The last patients in the outpatient department had been seen. A few others in the emergency room were waiting to be moved to the wards. Sounds of screeching brakes and skidding tires just outside the double doors of the emergency room suggested that we might have a critically injured patient. A moment later, six young men burst in, carrying the body of their comrade, and they laid him on the center bed of the emergency room. Then they stopped. They were still surrounding him, and they were blocking my access. As we nudged them out of the way, we gathered what had happened. Young man's name was Koppel. He apparently wasn't part of the tribal fight, but he had walked right into the middle of one. He had taken a bullet in the head. The slug had entered just in front of his left ear, passed through the back of his throat, and settled next to the right carotid artery. Koppel was conscious, but he was struggling to breathe. He couldn't swallow, he couldn't speak. The swelling in the back of his throat was expanding rapidly, threatening to obstruct his airway. We scrambled for oxygen and suction and IV access, but I knew down deep that that wasn't going to be enough. Koppel was dying. He needed a surgical procedure, a, a tracheostomy, to establish an airway. Well, for the past 28 years, Kujip Nazarene Hospital has been the most reliable surgical center in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, and that is due mainly to an incredible missionary surgeon, friend, and colleague named Dr. Jim Radcliffe. But Jim wasn't around that Friday night. Well, tracheostomy isn't the most complicated or highly technical surgery. There's many in this audience who could do it easily. I had a reliable reference on my computer that described the procedure in four straightforward steps. First, find the right spot. <laughs> Second, stab a knife into that spot. Third, put a hook on the trachea. And fourth, put the tube in the hole. Yeah, I wish it was that easy. If it weren't for bleeding, it would be that easy. You have four steps. You have 90 seconds to complete them. If you do it correctly, the patient's going to breathe. Fail within that allotted time, and the patient dies. I hadn't done one before. I'd seen it attempted once, and I had watched a man die as we tried desperately to save him, and that memory remains firmly etched and hauntingly painful. I'm not a surgeon. I trained as a family practice doctor. And I wasn't excellent. I was fair to Midland. I'm left-handed, and even that might be a stretch.
our surgeon, Dr. Jim, tells me I'm ambisinestrous. <laughs> and I got him to admit that that's probably not a real word. But in my case, it means equally uncoordinated both sides. <laughs> I told Koppel I needed to cut a hole in his neck to help him breathe, and I asked him to sign a consent. <laughs> I didn't tell him I had never done one before. I tried to hide my own anxieties. I didn't tell him that should he refuse, while that would be lethal for him, it might leave my conscience less guilty. I told him he needed the procedure. It wasn't going to be easy. You mean no got one pala easy road. This pillow walk and me had through. And me had through, suppose me making. Our eyes fixed on each other's and I was pretty sure we both understood. He signed the consent and he wrote, Koppel, God bless. I don't know if he was talking, God bless Dr. Bill or God bless Koppel. I suspect he, he meant God bless both of us. I told him that if he wasn't ready to meet God, that this would be the right time. We prayed, and I would venture to say it was one of the most sincere and desperate prayers ever lifted by a patient and his doctor together. I needed help, and so I asked Dr. Aaron Meyer, a little plug for... Samaritan's Purse and the post-residency program. Thank you for sending Dr. Aaron. She's young, but she's well-seasoned in critical situations, and I needed help, along with an anesthetist, David, and nurse, Vero. And as we set up, Koppel was straining for every breath. It was obvious uh, we didn't have long. I put him to sleep with some IV medication, and the desperation melted from his face. As planned, David made one attempt to place a tube orotracheally down the, down the mouth into the trachea, but there was just no way. Passage was obstructed, and the clock is ticking. Vero handed me the scalpel. I stabbed the blade into Koppel's neck. Blood pooled quickly. I pushed deeper, and bubbles rose out of the wound. That was evidence that we were in the trachea. I tried to hook that lower trachea while Aaron attempted insertion of the tube. The hole was too small. Time was running out. Couple's oxygen saturation plummeted. His pulse was slowing. The alarms began to scream. I stretched the hole with an instrument, and Aaron tried the tube again. This time there was a whoosh of air from the lungs, and then a sudden cough and a clot of blood shot up like a geyser out of that tube, splattering on the overhead light above us. Koppel was breathing. Hours after, the hours after the procedure required uh, rather intense efforts to support Koppel and protect his newly fashioned airway. It was hard work, but not burdensome. Koppel recovered, and six days later the swelling subsided, and Jim removed the tracheal tube. Couple made a commitment of his life to Christ, and he returned home to his wife and three children. Jesus teaching from Simon's boat in the shallows. Simon sitting there waiting. Jesus finishes speaking to the crowd, and then he turns his attention to Simon. Launch out into the deep. Let down your nets. Let's go fishing.
Scripture tells us Simon's words, and I think we can guess the spirit in which he said them. Master, you've got to be kidding. Have you forgotten who you're talking to? It's me, Simon, fisherman Simon. We worked all night. We fished all night. We didn't catch a thing. Our nets are nearly clean. We're tired and we're hungry and we can go fishing another day. But Simon doesn't stop there. And this is it, friends. Don't miss it. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Because you say so, I will launch out into the deep. Never the less. Never again the shallows. Never again the same. Deeper than my plans, deeper than my dreams, than my gifts or my abilities or my courage or my strength. This isn't about fishing anymore. This is all about a decision whether I am going to cling to my comfortable world where I know the rules and the boundaries. I can weigh the risks versus the benefits. I know the rate of return on every venture. Or whether I will launch into the deep where I cannot touch the bottom, where I do not know what awaits me. It is decision time and everything hinges on the one who is calling my name. Do I trust him? I did my family practice residency at ORU in Tulsa, Oklahoma, later in his image. After residency, Marsh and I stayed with the program another two years. John said it was for the faculty. I think it was for remediation. <laughs> One Sunday night, I was listening to our pastor preach, and he was using an illustration about a missionary doctor in Africa. And while he was giving that illustration, I asked myself, why is that someone else's story? Why is that never going to be my story? And I knew immediately what the reason was. Because I'm going to raise my children in America. And as soon as that thought came to me, I realized that I had put a condition on my commitment to follow Jesus. And I released that condition. And I felt that God would have us apply to be missionaries. Operative word there is apply. I didn't really mean to serve as a missionary. We would apply. We would be rejected. I hoped graciously. And then that would be over and we could get on with our lives. I don't know exactly how or why, but our mission board accepted us and they assigned us to Swaziland in southern Africa. Before we could go, we needed to raise support and speak in the churches. I was a small town boy, and this is a long time ago, although not quite as long ago as what, the, what I'm about to say will seem. I was pretty certain that planes weren't often successful in crossing oceans. I came to the conclusion then that uh, I had been called to die in a plane crash over the Atlantic. I found that rather freeing as I went and spoke in the church as I could paint a rather heroic picture of this 
commitment to be a, become a medical missionary. I could testify to a calling and then I could die in a plane crash on the way to the field. And how great a story would that be? I really feel bad for Marcia and our three kids, but what could I say? Imagine, if you can, my surprise and profound shock when we made it over the Atlantic. I look out the window and I see the coast of Africa. Oh, no. This, this plane is going to land and I'm going to be a medical missionary. I'd love to tell you that it got better after that, but that wouldn't be true. It got worse. In fact, it got much worse. In those early days, I was assigned to the children's ward. Had 50 to 75 uh, sick babies and children. And after I finished inpatient rounds, there were another 50 to 75 waiting me in the outpatient area. As you enter children's ward, you walk down a hallway and then you come into an open ward and and the first uh, two tables there, we called them drip tables. Then there were two rows of critically sick babies, all on IV fluids. And on most of the days, one or more of those babies would die. And almost always in my hands. At the very end of a baby's life, as their condition was deteriorating, we would rush the child back to a certain cubicle, and then we would go through a certain routine. Of course, it's not routine for those mothers. I would intubate, we would put a bag to the tube, establish a good IV suction, we would do the drugs, and we would do chest percussions if necessary. And while we would do this, uh, baby's mom, that African mother, would stand off to the side and she would be watching and she was silent and still. And almost every single time, our interventions failed. And I would e eventually stop the resuscitation efforts. Let's quit. There's nothing more we can do. And then I would look up from the baby to the mom and say, in Siswati Ufile, your baby is dead. I'm sorry. And then those African mothers would scream. And they would drop to the floor in a free fall. And then they would begin to writhe and pound their fists. And sometimes they would beat their heads against the cement. They would tear at their clothes and they would tear at their skin. And they would continue wailing loudly. And every single time, another part of me died. We had only been there six to eight weeks, and I knew it was over. I couldn't do it any longer. I began to question my fellow missionaries. What is the shortest period of time any long-term missionary lasted <laughs> on the field? Yeah, you guys understand. I didn't want to be the answer. Didn't want my name to be the answer to that question. And they kept telling me, and I think they were lying, but they kept saying, ten months. Well, I was eight weeks in, there was no way I was going to make it to ten months. I was going to be the answer. 
And finally, one morning, about three months in, I was standing outside children's ward. It was time for me to go in and see those patients, and I couldn't. It was as if somebody had constructed a wall, and there was no way I could go into that ward. And I walked away. I quit. Needed to go to the bathroom. My pee was brown. Urine was brown. I don't know what the right word in Louisville is. <laughs> Looked in the mirror. My eyes were yellow. Went over to the labs to ask them to draw my blood and do some liver tests. And they came back sky high, just off the charts. And I had hepatitis. Went home. Began to complain to Marcia. Wine. I can't do this. I'm not the answer. I'm not able. I know that now. I'm, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to admit that I'm a failure and I'm ready to bear the shame of that. And it was going to be pretty intense for me. But then I uh, continued that complaint. I said, but why the hepatitis? It seems to me that God has made me into a joke. And I don't like his sense of humor. And then I heard God speak to me. It's good that you're here flat on your back. It'll be even better if you listen. I have seen Africa from the beginning. I've seen every baby that has died and every mother that has cried. Long before you came, long before you heard or saw or touched, I was here. I saw, I heard. You aren't the answer for Africa, but I am. You can't carry the burden of a lost and hurting world, but I can. There is only one Savior, only one Redeemer, and you aren't it, but I am. And now, if you're ready, you are invited. Invited to be with Jesus as Jesus heals, as Jesus saves, as Jesus redeems. And I was free. From then, I was free to go to every patient bedside because Jesus was there and I wanted to be where Jesus was. I was free to offer myself, to serve, to comfort, to release the outcomes, no matter what they may be, into the strong arms of him who is faithful and true. Jesus said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. Simon starts to protest, Master, we've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. But then Simon gets it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done it, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Their boats began to sink. Their knees began to buckle and their lives were forever changed. The small world of a Galilean fisherman swallowed up in the great purpose of God. My very small world absorbed by a gracious invitation 
to be with Jesus in medical missions. I know not when I go or where I go from this familiar scene, but Christ is here and Christ is there and all the way between. And though I go from all I know to some dim, vast unknown, though late I stay or soon I go, I shall not go alone. Do you want a cause that demands total commitment and the investment of your life? You're not going to find it in pleasure or possession or position. They're going to leave you with an empty boat and spoiled nets. My prayer for you and for us, that this will be our testimony. Nevertheless, always God's highest and best. That God would enlarge our hearts and our souls till they're big enough to embrace the whole world as he does. God bless you. Thank you for listening.